Chapter Thirteen of From Mud to Mufti by Bruce Bairn's Father. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Thirteen, The Last Lap, A Peaceful Scene, Meet My Company, A French Bed. The car buzzed along the dusty country roads under the efficient guidance of an A.S.C. chauffeur, and I surveyed the scenery at ease. It all struck me as so very, very different from the Ypres Armentier sector. This was far more France, and consequently prettier. The little villages amongst the valleys and the wooded hills and streams all combined to give an entirely different tone to the war in this area. I talked to the driver. Montrelet, I found, was a small village not far from Candace, which in turn was not far from Doulon. It was there that the present army administrative commandant had fixed up his temporary abode. How long he was staying there the chauffeur didn't know. He, the chauffeur, had to drive about all over the army area and knew it all, so I soon got the hang of things. I gazed around me at the scenery. It was really quite nice. For the first time in the war I was able to get an idea of the country in which hostilities were being carried on. That's the advantage of a staff job. If you are bound for the trenches in a battalion life your horizon is extremely limited. You go by night into the war zone, and your life from then onwards is cast amongst mangled estaminets, ruined villages, and trenches. On a staff job, although you see all the mangled up part, yet now and again you do catch sight of what the normal country looks like. It is a fairly hilly country about Montrelet, and the road twisted about amongst valleys and in and out of woods, until at last we reached a pretty little village with a few scattered cottages and an ancient church and turned into a farmyard. Hens hysterically scattered in all directions, and the car pulled up at the farmhouse front door. The village was Montrelet, and this farmhouse was to be my billet. My things were carried in, and entering the house I met a corporal in the hall. It appeared that the colonel was out. He had to be out nearly all day and every day, but would be back in the evening. So I left my traps in a heap at the foot of the stairs and strolled out to look around. This is a curious job I'm in now, I thought to myself. How different from my last time out here. Fancy being able to live in a house like this. For the house was certainly a good one. I have always thought that houses without the front torn out and a couple of holes in each gable end are much better than those possessing that doubtful decoration. This was a real old square-built farmhouse with the farm sprawling round it on three sides and a garden behind. Beyond the garden was a little old grey stone church which stood on the edge of a very large wood. It was a beautiful evening in early summer, and the whole outfit was really very pretty and peaceful. I strolled about the garden and mused around the church and wood. It struck me most forcibly as beautiful but sad. There was such a quiet melancholy about this place, an effect produced, I think, by the close proximity of war to this scene without that proximity having disturbed the place or knocked it about. Here was normal, peaceful French village life. Only a few miles away were the trenches before Albert, with all the mangled-up desolation which surrounds them. Somehow I found the village of Montrelet on this still summer evening with its little cottages in the sunlit valley, its old grey church, and the peaceful farmyard, had the effect of emphasizing the pathos of this devastating war in a greater degree than many a ruined landscape that I had previously seen. I returned to the farmhouse after my stroll around and sat down to smoke in one of the front rooms. 
Quite a good room it was, with a lavish distribution of looking-glass and gilt frames, and a highly colored ornamental ceiling like the top of a Christmas cake. Presently a car rolled into the yard and up to the door. The colonel had returned. I felt somehow that he would be a terrifying person who would come into the hall and be heard saying, Fee, fi, fo, fum, I smell the blood of an Englishman, or something on those lines. But he didn't. Instead he walked into the room where I was, and I introduced myself to him. He was as nice a colonel as ever I have met. A Scotsman in a Highland regiment. Discipline with understanding were his chief props, and he was a real good sort. I can always allude to him as the colonel after this, which saves me putting down his real name or inventing a false one. Tricky fellows, these authors, you know. It was about 7.30 p.m. now, so it was dinner time, and the colonel's batman proceeded to get the meal ready. He disappeared into the room across the hall, and one could hear him working off crude French with a Scotch accent on the people of the farm. A pretty considerable quantity of this farm load of soldiers was Scottish, as I soon found. The colonel, his servant, and a party of soldiers billeted in a loft, completed the military outfit which came from the north of the Tweed. There were a couple of other fellows who could claim nothing more than Middlesex, Essex, or Suffolk for their origin. The dinner appeared and was spread on the table by Clark, the colonel's man, who darted about the room in a kilt full of timidity of the colonel and a desire to please. We sat down to a plain but efficient meal, and the colonel outlined the job that lay before me after which we got to discussing things in general, including, of course, the war. The colonel, I found, had been serving in many parts of the show where I myself had been, and had experienced all sorts of wild and strenuous times. We coincided as regards knowledge of the front, at Messines and Ypres, and I soon saw that he had had what the vulgar might term a skinful of the Ypres salient. So had I, and our conversation resulted in considerable mutual understanding. He had had a terrific overdose of hooge, a spot I have never been to, but I can thoroughly guarantee that part of the line is a first-class sample of modern war. For an hour or two we regaled each other with stories of trials, tribulations, and grim jokes, in the manner you will notice any two do who find that they both have known the same part of the front, and we laughed a lot about it, too. When one looks back on some of the pickles one has been in, they do seem funny. They are anything but amusing at the time, but everyone laughs at them after. I remember trying to smile in the middle of the second Ypres tornado, just to see whether my face could crack up into that facial contortion known as a grin. I was curious to see whether the death-charged and hateful atmosphere pervading the salient had permanently stopped my capabilities in this direction. I tried to think of something to smile at. I looked around me, as I lay in a fold of the ground under a machine-gun deluge and surveyed the scene. Crumphs! exploding in all directions. Every house with the roof off or in the act of coming off. And then I thought, what a world. We build houses to live in and enjoy ourselves, and have doctors to mend us as much as possible, to prevent decease. And yet here we are all trying to knock everything down and kill as hard as we can. I smiled at the incongruity. The colonel and I aired these thoughts to each other that night, and we smiled again. I was to start on my job next day. I knew nothing about it as yet, but I was to go out with the colonel in the morning to a railhead south of Albert, and so I would pick up what I had to do. 
We sat and smoked a bit, and then went to bed. It was a curious old place, this farmhouse, good old-fashioned rooms. My bedroom overlooked the farmyard and contained two huge wooden beds with canopy sort of structures sticking up at the pillow end, from which curtains hang in regal festoons. I had my valise and boxes dragged upstairs, and by the light of a candle proceeded to dig myself in. The chief ingredient of a French bed seems to be a nondescript sort of a pillow eiderdown mattress. An enormous feather-stuffed cushion. It's a mile too large for a pillow and not large enough for anything else. What you are supposed to do with it I don't know. You are nearly smothered if you use it as a pillow, and your feet would be frozen if you use it as a counterpane. Each of the beds had one of these monstrosities and feather beds as well. I decided to be continental and risk it. I chose the bed nearest the window, sank out of sight into the feathers, and pulled the other thing over the top of me. Thus enveloped, I went to sleep. End of chapter 13 Recording by Philip Gould